The Science and Art of Pricing podcast is for those business people who want to tackle the mysteries of pricing products and services. As we discuss the challenging world of pricing, we'll hear from some of the greatest minds, share practical tips and best practices on how to use pricing to create a competitive advantage. Thanks for listening. Today, I have the great privilege of talking with Dean Tyndall, who is the Managing Director of Sawtooth Software in Europe. Now, Sawtooth Software is a household name in pricing analytics, as they have created probably the most comprehensive pricing analytics software that is available in the market. Sawtooth Software also has an, an analytics arm, and Dean runs the European operations of Sawtooth. He is easily in the top 10 smartest people I have had the good fortune of meeting. He knows pricing analytics inside and out. Prior to Sawtooth, Dean has worked in leadership roles at Box Cleaver and KPMG and has conducted possibly hundreds of complex analytics projects. So it's safe to say Dean knows his stuff. Welcome to the podcast, Dean. Wow, thank you very much for that amazing introduction, Michael. It's a pleasure. Sponsored. It's a pleasure having you. I've known you for a, a few years now, and, and I've always been very impressed that this great knowledge is also accompanied by a very easygoing personality, someone that is just pleasant to listen to. So should we dive in? Yeah, let's go for it. I'm excited to talk pricing. Good. Well, first, it appears to me that a lot of pricing decisions rely on information gathered from surveys. What are some of the best practices in using surveys for pricing decisions? And are surveys reliable? And what are some of the pitfalls that managers who use surveys should avoid? Yeah, sure. And I think it's important to understand why we use surveys for pricing, especially when there's a lot of data that already exists on the database, the databases that businesses have. And the reason for this is a lot of the data that already exists is data that is fixed and data that we can't change. And we can look back into the past, but we can only ever look at what's already happened. Um, survey data allows us to look into what might happen and what happens when we make certain changes. So this is why surveys come in really handy when we're doing pricing research. Really, they just allow us to formulate scenarios which haven't ever existed. We can test how people react to any market changes we want to do. But it's really important to bear in mind that when we formulate these questions and the experiments that we create, we need to make sure that those questions and experiments aren't going to skew the results. Mm -hmm. And another important element is that we need to make sure that we're speaking to an accurate representation of the market when we're speaking to them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, part of this is simply ensuring that you're using good survey design to using good questions written in a non-biased way that will allow you to create good quality data. But also if you speak to the wrong people, you're always going to get the wrong answer. So, you know, we need to speak to the right people in the right way and make sure that we're getting quality responses. Otherwise, you know, it's, it's crap in, crap out ultimately. Yeah. You've worked in marketing sciences for many years and what are some of the uh, skill sets that are essential in being successful in that discipline? Yeah, so for me, it's it's always been important to be curious and to be motivated by solving the problems that your stakeholders have. 
it's called marketing science, but I think quite often we forget about the science aspect of it. What, what a good marketing scientist should be doing is creating experiments and using those experiments to answer the hypotheses that your clients and stakeholders give you. If we create the right experiment, we can test the right hypothesis and we can answer those questions rigorously. Statistical tools and algorithms are obviously a big part of that, but if we create the wrong experiment, the, the best algorithm in the world isn't going to rescue you from that. Many years ago, I, I worked at a company that was a marketing sciences department. And it looked to me that the company moved a lot of people into that department without having the, the necessary education, necessary knowledge, hoping that they'll just pick it up as they go. And some of them did pick it up as they went, and some of them, them did not. And it's marketing science tends to be a discipline where you can sort of get by without immediately displaying the fact that you really don't know what's going on. You know, when you're a pilot and you, you don't know how to land an airplane, you're not going to work. You know, same thing with a doctor who doesn't really know how to do an operation. Marketing sciences, you can get by for a while. And I've always thought that there should be a little bit more rigor in weeding out candidates who really don't know how to get started with this discipline and how to conduct it. Have you had an experience in the past where you dealt with people, whether they were clients or coworkers who really did not know what they were talking about? Even using myself as, as an example. So I don't have a academic record of learning statistics. Myself, I have a economics degree. So what that taught me how to do is to think in terms of frameworks and models. So I came to the profession with an understanding of how to think abstractly about things, which I think really helps for marketing science, but I didn't know the statistics. And thankfully I was able to, to learn that from colleagues and mentors going through, but not everyone has the capacity for statistics. I would say it's important to understand enough so that you know how to break something. If you don't know when a particular model or algorithm or assumption is going to be broken, then you're just going to be using everything carte blanche and, and you're never really going to know when you've crossed the line. And I think that's important, but I don't think we need people who can, you know, calculate Euclidean distances by the hand. I think we need people who understand enough to know, hang on, what I'm about to do is breaking several assumptions and that is going to render this, this model unusable. In fact, statistics is only a portion of, of the, the skill set that people in this discipline need to have. Let's talk about pricing. Let's dive a little bit more into pricing. Pricing is the vehicle by which companies monetize value. However, products or features often have different value to different customers. So segmenting customers into unique groups is becoming an increasingly common exercise in organizations value-based segmentation, so to say. Dean, if you could walk me through it a little bit, how would someone go about conducting value-based segmentation? What are some of the steps? What techniques and methodologies would one apply? Yes, certainly. So segmentation has long been a popular technique for grouping individuals into more coherent and easily reached groups. The most popular forms of segmentation out there include, you know, demographic segmentations, using clustering algorithms to identify groups who are similar on attitudes or beliefs within the market. 
value-based segmentations are gaining some ground lately because businesses are really trying hard to make the most out of the customers they already have. They want to understand how to increase the amount of money that people are spending. And really that leads us to the first step of creating a value segmentation is understanding how value is generated within the business in the first place. So how do people earn you money? But also it's not just the income side, it's, it's how do they cost you money as well? So it's really understanding that customer lifetime value across all of the customers, identifying the calculation and then applying that calculation, however you define it, to each of the customers in your database. And when it comes to you know identifying these inputs for the value segmentation, what we're really looking to do is understand the potential of each of the variables on your database to describe or predict the value measure that you've just created, you know, ideally with a level of statistical rigor. And this can be, for, be performed with, you know, lots of different algorithms such as random forests, shade, latent class, or even simple forms of regression or even significance testing. Because ultimately what we're doing is we're just looking to identify the key elements of our customer data, which drive the value behavior we've previously identified. And once we've identified those key elements, so for example, tenure, order frequency, use of credit, it can often be time to revert back to common sense and look to stakeholders to understand, you know, how can we group these variables which have shown to have an impact on value in a way that makes the most sense internally for your systems, for how you operate with customers. Well, you mentioned earlier a couple of complex approaches, Jade, regression, latent class. So let's jump into some of those more complex approaches in pricing analysis. One of them is MaxDiff analysis. Sawtooth Software has a very capable tool that allows you to do MaxDiff analysis. What is MaxDiff analysis and how is it used? Why should pricing managers be familiar with this technique? Yeah, sure. So MaxDiff is a form of questioning where we're typically seeking to understand the relative hierarchy of a given list of items. And this can be pretty much everything. So it can be advertising messages, ice cream flavors, product features, really anything where you want to understand how people would rank them. Typically, we show people between four and six items at a time, and we ask them to select the best and worst item each time we show them a set. So we'll show them six items, ask them to select the best and worst, then we'll show them another six items and go through each time. And typically, each item will be shown at least three times in different positions and amongst different items. And this gives us a really robust understanding of how people rank the full list. But really to understand why MaxDiff or Maximum Difference Scaling, to give it its full name, is such a good tool, we need to think about how poor traditional rating scales are at driving differentiation. If you give people a list of items and you say, how important are these on a scale of one to five? Chances are everyone's going to say everything's either a five or a four. You'll get a lot of scores the same. You won't then really have a granular understanding of how people rank everything because most responses have just ranked everything the same. So traditional rating scales are pretty poor, especially at differentiation. If we then go to the, the flip side of that, the absolute opposite end of the scale where you want to drive the most differentiation, we're talking about technique called paired comparisons, where we might show people two items and say, okay, of these two, which is the best, which is the worst? 
but that's really inefficient. That is going to take so many questions mm -hmm. to get to that final ranking that we don't want to put respondents through that. So max diff takes the benefits of pair comparisons because they're asking people to drive that differentiation, but we make it much more efficient. And because we can include, you know, six items in a set up to and rotate them, we're learning a lot and we can infer a lot about relationships between all the items. It's a really powerful tool for understanding, you know, relative appeal. And you can even make it more powerful by using what's called an anchored max diff. So you can add in additional questioning to help understand the absolute appeal of the items within there. That's to say, you know, which of the items in the list would actually drive your desired behavior or which actually appeal to a respondent rather than just how they rank them relative to each other. So an anchor would be a price anchor. For example, would you be willing to pay a certain amount higher or lower? Or you could, it could also be, I would be interested in purchasing it versus not purchasing it uh, other than just an actual rank. Yeah, exactly. So, it's, so an example of a, an anchor question would be, which of these features would actually drive your interest or which of these products would you actually purchase mm -hmm. and then when you add the anchor in you can identify everything above the anchor then suddenly is a purchased item and everything below it is not mm -hmm. and you can use then that data to drive really good techniques such as a turf analysis which is total and duplicated reach and frequency which shows you how to optimize reach across your portfolio as well so it, it's a really powerful technique and despite its perceived complexity it's actually relatively simple to employ the end result is a is a ranking but it's not just a ranking but it's also there's magnitude within it so people can tell whether you know the first item is twice as preferred as the second item but the second and the third they're neck and neck about that's a lot of where the power also comes from tell me a little Definitely. bit about the the do's and don'ts of max diff analysis anybody who is looking to roll up their sleeves and conduct max diff analysis what are the things that they should do and what are the things that they should stay away from doing? Max diff is pretty hard to break. So, you know, we need, we need a list of items. So you need to know how many items you want to test. And we need to show each of those items a set amount of time. If you want the, the most robust version, you need to make sure that you're showing each item three times to each respondent. And that's going to give you really strong results and you're going to get really strong differentiation. However, the downfall of a max diff is the more items we have in our list, the more questions we need to ask respondents. So we just need to make sure that we're not putting a max diff study into a questionnaire. That's going to take 10 minutes because nobody wants to do that. We're not going to talk about that today here in this podcast, maybe potentially sometime in the future. There are some advanced versions of max diff. One of them that I thought was pretty impressive is called Bandit Max Diff, where max diff is actually learning from the many respondents that are making choices and so the next respondent is actually shown already the winners of, of previous respondents so you can include even hundreds of items into that max diff because it has learned from the past what some of the more preferred items are and, and it's only showing that so we, we don't need to go into that level of detail what i do want to ask you though dean other research approaches that are being used today in the world of pricing research. For example, Van Westerndorp price sensitivity meter or Gabor Granger. What are they? What are their pros and what are some of the cons in using those? Yeah, sure. So you've probably named 
the two primary ones that people use, and I've certainly used them myself in the past as well. And and first, we'll we'll talk about Gabba Granger pricing, and this really involves showing a, a respondent a particular product, so you're showing them a fully formed product concept on its own on a screen, and you're giving them a randomly generated price point. And you have a question, which is, you know, how likely would you, based on the below product or the below price, how likely would you be to purchase it? This is typically on a five-point scale. It could just be a yes-no point. But ultimately, what we're trying to do is, is work out whether at that price point they would be interested in buying the product or not. If someone is interested in buying the product, we will then increase the price point we show them and ask them the question again, up until the point where they no longer say they're interested in purchasing the product. On the other side, if somebody isn't interested in buying the product at that price, we can lower the price until they say they are interested in buying it. It's good because it can help you draw some pretty basic demand curves. So if you have, you know, price on the x-axis and percent agreeing to purchase on the on the y-axis, you can draw a demand curve for each of the products you test within your Gabba Granger. But the main drawback of a Gabba Granger style pricing is. We're asking about a single product in isolation. We're not putting it amongst some competitors in the market. It's not particularly realistic in that sense, but it can be useful for identifying psychological price cliffs which exist in the market. So do you have a product that cannot go above $10? Does demand just drop off a cliff after $10? It's really useful for identifying those kind of price points. Van Westendorp is another popular technique and, and it's probably got even less rigor than Gabba Granger. It involves asking respondents to answer four questions again about a single product fully formed concept and and these questions are you know at what price would you the product be so cheap you'd question its quality at what price would a product be a bargain and you'd definitely purchase it at what price would this product be getting expensive but you'd still probably purchase it what price would this product be far too expensive that you wouldn't purchase it at all you collect all this data from all the respondents for your products, and then you chart the cumulative frequencies of these four questions. And if you chart it on an XY scatter plot, again, with price on the X and frequency on the Y, you get four lines. And these four lines form a rough diamond shape in the middle at the different intersections. And this is typically referred to as, you know, the acceptable pricing zone so as long as you price your product within this zone van westendorp says you know oh yeah you're probably priced about right there's also four intersections of lines that people are interested in but most people are interested in the bottom middle intercept which is the opp or the optimum price points but you know i don't think there's ever really been any research to back up the efficacy of van westendorp analysis it can be useful for products where you You've generally no idea how to price them. You just want to know what respondent feel is an okay price for them, give you a ballpark price. That's not going to turn too many people off. But it's really, for me, Van Westendorp is you're at the initial stages of product development and you need an idea of the pricing. For a couple of seconds, let me take a break and give a shout out to our sponsor of this podcast, which ironically and actually unbeknownst to Dean is Satu Software. Satu Software has brought to market two fantastic software products for analytics and pricing researchers. One is possibly the most capable product in the market, Lighthouse Studio, 
which is used from Google, Procter & Gamble, and pricing consulting giants such as Simon Kucher and Associates and many others to help with their most complex pricing research needs. The other is a cloud-based survey tool called Discover, which is also capable of setting up MaxDiff, conjoint analysis, and other advanced capabilities. If you have any interest, please reach out to me. I will put the link in the description of the podcast. So this takes us to conjoint analysis, which is often considered the gold standard of pricing research methodology, particularly when looking to understand what customers are willing to pay for a product or feature when looking to optimize price. So first in high level, can you walk me through how a conjoint study is set up, how it works? Yeah, sure. So conjoint analysis or discrete choice modeling as it's sometimes known is a technique designed for understanding and predicting the choices that people make in a given situation. A typical conjoint study will present respondents with, you know, three or four products at a time, maybe more, not often less, and ask them which of the products they would choose, or even we can have a non-option in there so they can choose none of the products at all. These products or concepts are then all altered slightly and respondents are asked to choose again what product they would do now that we've changed the situation. And this process of choosing from a series of experimentally designed concepts allows us to understand what is driving respondent choice. And after the fact, we can predict choices for a range of products and circumstances that they might not have even experienced within the study. So one of the key elements, and I've just mentioned it there, is experimental designs. So the important thing to understand about conjoint analysis is that we are creating an artificial experiment. And we're doing this in order to understand how products are likely to perform and in essence, to do this, we need to deconstruct the products available in the market into their individual components. So we call these attributes and levels. And we do this so that we can understand how each of these components contribute to the entire appeal of the product. So when we deconstruct a product or we, we test it in a conjoint analysis, we can then add the product back together and understand how appealing it would likely to be. Choosing you know, the attributes and, and levels within a conjoint is also probably the most important part of any study. We need to make sure that we're thinking carefully about how we decompose those products in the market. So for example, if we have a t-shirt, we can have attributes that include things like brand, size, fit, color, material, price. So there would be our attributes and that's how we've decomposed what a t-shirt is for the model. But also within size, we can have levels. So we can have small, medium, large, extra large. And we've, again, then decomposed the T-shirt even further with all our levels. One of its key strengths is telling you why a product may be performing well. What is it about that T-shirt that is driving people to choose it in our simulation? Is it the color? Is it the brand? Is it the material? Or is it the price? When we design a conjoint experiment and we carefully choose those attributes and levels, we can then create a, a vivid picture of what is driving that choice in the market. So it isn't just about the predictions, it's about the explanations and the motivations of respondents underneath that. One of my uh, pet peeves when working with clients on a project that involves conjoint analysis is the confusion between a conjoint study and a product concept test. 
very often clients insist that certain combinations of features will be included in the conjoint study because that's the product the way it looks today is that a necessity what is your take on product concept tests versus conjoint analysis the product concept tests have, have, have got a real place you know we if you have a fixed product and a fixed market and you want to know how it performs in there great test it you can even you know have some different scenarios and understand the impact of those different scenarios However, once you've tested it, it's fixed and you can't go back and change it. So you can might be able to have, you know, perfect marketing of that product in that one scenario, but we can't change it after the fact. The benefit of conjoint analysis is that you can create the market in any way you want. So you can edit your product to be different from how you first thought it was going to be. You can then simulate your competitors having higher prices because they've just increased their prices. So the conjuring experiment allows you to maintain the life of it after it, you know, your concept test has failed at the first hurdle. The sort of negative side of that is sometimes we have to be a little bit more forgiving to conjuring analysis that it's not going to be a real 100% example of how the market works because we might not be able to do it for the model. We might have to test some products which don't exist in the real world. And so it can be quite hard trying to talk clients down from having an absolute amazing, perfect representation of the market to having one that is 95% perfect and produces a good model. Mm -hmm. So any of our listeners who are not as familiar with conjoint analysis, what's the end result of conjoint analysis? Sure. So I, I, I kind of mentioned we we understand a bit of the why. And, and this is really because when we perform a conjoint model and we have attributes and levels and we speak to respondents and then we do our model at the end of it, we get scores, which are called utilities or, you know, the appeal of each level that we tested. And these can help us understand which element was appealing to which respondents and therefore we can we can get the why. But really the, the tour de force of conjoint analysis is the market simulator that you can use to predict respondent choices. Using a market simulator, you can create a entire market overview. So you can put in all the products that exist in the market that you tested, understand how respondents are likely to choose all of those products, and even better understand what happens when you make a, a change to that scenario. So, you know, this enables you to edit scenarios in order to understand how best to optimize share, revenue, or profit. You can war game competitors decreasing their prices, understand what might happen if you increase yours, identify how particular product innovations might impact your bottom line. It's, it's hard to underestimate how much value you can get from a, a conjoint simulator that has been employed on a, a well-designed study. One of the increasingly popular features of a conjoint analysis and conjoint study and conjoint simulation is understanding willingness to pay from using the simulators. Dean, if you could talk a little bit about how to calculate willingness to pay from using a conjoint simulator. Yeah, sure. So willingness to pay is, is a key output of using conjoint analysis, especially for pricing decisions. Um, companies often need to understand, you know, what additional value is being generated for the product if we improve it. 
And actually, willingness to pay analysis is relatively simple to undertake once you have the market simulator in place. And I think one of the, there's a couple of different ways to do willingness to pay, but probably the most well-used and the simplest method is, is what's known as the demand equalization price point. So let's imagine we have a, a base scenario for our market. It's our, it's our business as usual. The product exists in its current configuration. You've got some competitors in there. Let's pretend it's, it's a soft drink. And we want to understand, you know, if we increase the size of our soft drink from 500 mil to 600 mil, is that going to increase our ability to charge more for our products when we've got the competitive context? So if we want to understand, you know, what's the willingness to pay for this increase in size, what we need to do is go into our market simulator, make a note of the, the share of preference that our product gets in the business as usual scenario, and then we need to make the change in the simulator. So in this example, we would change 500 mil to 600 mil, and, and hopefully we would see a corresponding increase in the share of preference that this product would receive. Now, when we're doing willingness to pay analysis by hand, the long way, what you're then going to do is increase the price of that particular product until the demand gets to the same level as in the business as usual scenario. For example, if you increase the price by 20 cents and, and that's what got you back to the demand equalization price, then 20 cents would be your demand equalization price or your willingness to pay for that increase in size for the soft drink. Lean, it was a great pleasure having you as a guest. Thanks for sharing your unparalleled knowledge with me and the listeners. Anyone wanting to reach Dean for any business-related questions, you can simply reach him at dean at sawtoothsoftware.com. Please remember it's sawtoothsoftware.com and not sawtooth.com. As I mentioned earlier, Dean runs the European operations for Sawtooth Software, and Sawtooth Software has a, an analytics consulting arm as well. Feel free to reach out to Dean, and he and his team will be very happy to help you. Thanks again for joining me, Dean, and I hope to see you again soon. Thank you for your time, Miklos. Love that.